You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, this is Arya Cohen-Wade. I'm hosting a conversation today with the writer Liz Wolf. Liz, could you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Liz. Uh, I'm managing editor at Young Voices, which is an op-ed pitching organization for libertarian and politically independent writers. And I am a contributor for Washington Examiner, and I write freelance for a gazillion different organizations. Um, I pride myself on being able to publish at the American Conservative and Playboy all in the same week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks for coming on today. So the topic of our conversation is going to be the cause celeb of Aziz Ansari and his the very bad date that a young woman uh, who we're calling Grace had with him. Um, most people, if you spend time online, have probably read about this story. But for people who maybe hadn't heard about it, um, one of which was my wife, I had heard of it a couple nights ago before it broke onto the front page of the New York Times. Could you kind of give a rundown of how the story unfolded? Yeah, sure. Um so basically a writer, I believe, named Katie Way at Babe.net, which I honestly hadn't heard of before this story broke. Me neither. Uh, broke this story about uh, a young woman, a, a 22-year-old photographer at the time uh, called Grace. Her real name was never published. Um, and about how she basically met Aziz Ansari, who is you know very popular for his work as a stand-up comic and for his creation of Master of None, the Netflix series. Um, and basically they met at some party um, Things proceeded, they exchanged numbers, talked over text, they arranged a date. And then what's described in the rest of the article is a date that a lot of people online don't fully classify as sexual assault, but is a relatable and sort of coercive feeling experience, um, at least from the perspective of of the young woman, um, of, you know, her basically expressing some hesitation with various sexual acts and Aziz doing the whole like, oh, do you want another drink? Do you want to do this? Let's do this. Being a little bit more forceful than he really should have been. Um, and so it, the, the way the story was presented, um, you know, it, it's seen as the continuation of like the Me Too movement. But there's been a lot of backlash about, OK, does this constitute sexual assault? Um, does this hinder this woman's like professional advancement? Um, and so it's, it's really made a lot of waves. Yeah, I, I think um, this has spawned more think pieces than any other specific act that's come out since Weinstein's and the initial Weinstein revelations themselves. Um, I think because, yeah, it's, it's what's described is in this gray zone where there's probably very there's few people who maybe would classify what Ansari did as uh, sexual assault. Um, there's some people who are like, this is run of the mill, like happens you know, thousands of times every day. And why is this even, why is this even an article at all? Um, uh, so there's been a backlash. A lot of um, conservative leading writers came out against this. Um, Caitlin Flanagan um, wrote a long piece about it in the Atlantic. She says uh, what she, uh, meaning what Grace and the writer who told her story created was 3000 words of revenge porn. And uh, Sonny Bunch at the Washington Post had an article that was headlined, uh, Babes, Aziz, and Sorry Peace was a gift to anyone who wants to derail me too. Um, and you wrote, you wrote a piece that went up today in uh, the Washington Examiner uh, with the headline, Aziz, and Sorry, Assaults or Oblivious or somewhere in between. And we'll link to that piece. Um, yeah, what, how, 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 why do you think this has sparked so much outrage? And I'm, I'm like, everyone has an opinion on this one. Whereas, you know, uh, 
the Prairie Home Companion guy putting his hand <laughs> up someone's shirt possibly accidentally has not sparked a national conversation. And what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I'm honestly really surprised that there hasn't been more discussion about Garrison Keillor um, because that struck me as uh, a situation where I'm I'm really not sure what happened there. And I don't want to be the person to sort of like, you know, say that it's absolutely not assault because I really I have no idea. But I'm surprised that we haven't sort of collectively pressed for more information about that. I wonder if it's just because Garrison Keillor is just not relevant to millennials. Nobody gives a fuck, um, <laughs> but, which is maybe unfortunate. I mean, it's his career. Uh, I think the reason why people care so much about Aziz Ansari is because we trusted him. And perhaps it's foolish of us to place trust in anybody in any position of power. You know, they're bound to disappoint, um, at least from my very cynical libertarian perspective. But I think, you know, if Aziz Ansari has basically spent his entire career seeming fairly woke, seeming fairly, um, seeming like he's intellectually considering these issues. I mean, there was a whole Master of None episode devoted to a sexual harassment claim uh, that, you know, one of the characters levied against another one of the characters. Right. And so it's, it's obvious that he's not an idiot about this. You know, he has considered, um, you know, <clears throat> whether workplace sexual harassment exists and what forms it takes. And so the fact that then he, he would... Turn- he wrote a book called Modern Romance, which I read. was actually, he co-wrote it with a um, professor of psychology, I believe. And it's an entertaining and interesting book about how, you know, people in their 20s and 30s are dating today um, when online, you know, online is the main way that people meet each other. Yeah, exactly. But so we sort of expected him to like be an authority on this, or at least to be aware of, you know, how to treat people in a reasonable way. And it seems like he's just another one of the somewhat slimy guys that isn't necessarily worthy of being locked up, but also isn't as good as we hoped. Yeah. That, um, was, I- that was a line that was, I believe was Grace says in the piece is like, you're, you're just like every other guy. Yeah. Exactly. And I think part of the reason why women especially have been so affected by this is because like, this is a very relatable experience. Um, You know, there's so like, for so long, women have been in that situation where there's this negotiation in a sexual encounter where a woman is sort of expressing some hesitation or expressing some boundary. And the guy isn't expressly saying, no, um, I'm just going to do what I want. But he is sort of not really making it easy for a woman to uh, do what she's comfortable with. And so I think like almost every woman has been in that situation and relates to Grace's experience. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you agree with Flanagan that this is 3000 words of revenge porn and should not have been published at all? Um, I've been thinking about that a lot. I, I think here's what I would have done. I don't, I don't think that that's a completely fair approach. I think that's a little overly dismissive, but I think she, she, stumbles on a grain of truth there where the, had I been the journalist or had I been the editor in charge of this story, I would have toned down certain aspects um, because I think it does come across a little bit revenge porny in the sense that it's more designed. And I've heard multiple people talk about this. It's more designed to humiliate Ansari than to really shed light on this really difficult uh, boundary between, you know, enthusiastic consent and perhaps just like lukewarm consent. Um, Because there's a world of difference between those two things. And I think this is really interesting because, you know, the sort of predominant feminist um, concept as of late has been enthusiastic affirmative consent is what matters. That's what consent is. Um, And I think this is sort of complicating that and saying, okay, well, she didn't explicitly say no. She didn't seem that into it. What happens in those situations? Is consent violated? If if that's the case, I don't know. Um, So I I guess basically Caitlin Flanagan 
was overly dismissive. I don't think she made it easy to interpret her point charitably. Um, but I think had I been the journalist or editor in charge of this, I would have approached it very differently. Yeah, I, the piece has uh, gotten a lot of criticism for the way it's written and the editing. Weird details are included, like stuff about the wine they were, whether they were drinking red or white wine. And uh, I, it's, it's weird to consider, like, if the story had ended up at a more reputable outlet, would they have even run it or would they have, or how would it have been shaped differently and how would it have like hit the culture differently? Um, there's definitely a lot to criticize and how, how it was presented. And as for myself, I can't, I, it, the discussion that has come from this is uh, definitely been fascinating and beneficial, I think, but um, there is the harm and embarrassment to, and sorry, the woman re- remains anonymous and, he did some stuff wrong, but he didn't, in my view, he didn't do anything criminal or even near criminal. And should he be punished? What's weird is everyone's expecting some huge punishment because that's the, the script that's been developed is like, um, story comes out about bad man. He is exiled from polite company and loses his movie deals or distribution deals or whatever. Um, there's been no actual punishment meted out for Ansari yet. Uh, that we know of. His series hasn't been canceled at Netflix uh, in the way that um, Louis C.K.'s stand-up specials were canceled at Netflix. Um, So it's mainly embarrassment right now and his name being attached to this story forever. Does he deserve that? At the same time, he is a rich, influential guy who acted like an asshole. And someone, (laughs) you know, those are the people who are going to pay for this. So I can't feel... He still has all of his cash. um, And his most of his cultural cachet still, although maybe he's not the woke, you know, the woke bay, as I saw him referred to at one point. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm hopelessly <laughs> stuck in the middle about, about this whole thing. Yeah, I, th- I think that's like how a lot of people are. And I think that's very fair. I mean, it's not a cut and dry situation. Um, and I think it's probably good. I think one thing that I've noticed, and you brought up the Garrison Keillor situation earlier, is it's very strange when an account perhaps hasn't been corroborated to the degree that um, a good journalist might expect or want. Um, and it's very like strange to me that people have been dismissed before sort of like further investigation. And of course, like it's difficult to know what goes on behind the scenes at like a given workplace. Like for example, Matt Lauer was dismissed really quickly. seems like Matt Lauer really should have been dismissed really quickly. I would not want to be a female working at NBC. Um, but with other people like Garrison Keillor, I do wonder is the private sector almost responding too quickly um, by, you know, canceling some of these deals because, they, you know, fear a PR disaster. I wonder if it's a good thing that at least with Ansari, they're taking a little bit more time to a- approach the situation and decide what the best course of action is. Yeah. Um, but so your your the initial tweet storm that you did about this that led me to uh, ask if you want to come on the show had a line that actually echoed a piece that I read today from uh, the New Republic, Sarah Jones, and you <laughs> you were writing about how. There's like a damned if you do, damned if you don't um, uh, dynamic for women. Either they, if they assert themselves, they come off like a bitch, uh, quoting you, <laughs> or uh, if they don't, then they get taken advantage of. Uh, Sarah Jones wrote in her piece, uh, women cannot avoid the stench of victimhood. It seems no matter what they do, if they speak up what happened to them, they choose victimhood. If they identify solutions, they choose victimhood. If they talk about date rape or bad sex, they choose victimhood. Um can you talk a little bit more about that? And if you see a connection between your interpretation and a uh, left interpretation from Sarah Jones? 
Yeah, well, I think that's the glory of being a libertarian. You know, you can be, I was literally like yelled at by social justice warriors yesterday online. And then this morning I woke up to a ton of like angry conservative hate mail in my inbox. And so it's, it's just glorious, you know, now a new Republic writer, apparently like somewhat agrees with me. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot. Um, I think it's indicative of the fact that so many women experience the same types of things that somebody on the right or somebody who's libertarian or somebody, you know, so far left that they're writing for New Republic sort of feels the same way. I think it's very much a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Um, but I also, I, I wonder to what degree women will just sort of be painted as victims no matter what they do. I think they're, so my personal take on it, and maybe this is just like informed by stoicism or, or what have you, is that the best way to solve um, messy encounters like the one between Ansari and Grace is to teach women, to socialize women, to have more agency, to be more assertive in situations like these, to speak up, to feel comfortable doing so. Um, and the only issue there is, you know, that's me speaking from a position of a lot of privilege, right? I see that, like, I've been in situations where that is possible. A lot of women aren't. Uh, and so I sort of understand the the predominant, more left-leaning rhetoric of, you know, it's silly to focus on just improving female assertiveness and agency because some women aren't able to do that. Um, but at the same time, I do wonder if that's a way we can escape this sort of victimhood trap. The issue is, you know, somebody will always paint us as victims in some way. Um, it will always be, oh, why are you complaining? Why aren't you just tolerating this? Why aren't you accepting this? Um, so I really don't know what to do there. I think women have been trying to figure out um, that mix between, like, legitimate victimhood and, like, ensuring that they're treated well in the future for a long time. I mean, it's difficult because if you if you publicize an issue, if you talk about a way you've been treated poorly, um, people see that uh, as a woman complaining, not a woman attempting to solve something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just perhaps really deeply ingrained sexism that's really, really hard to solve. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about the, the uh, age difference and the power dynamic between the two of them? Um, does that play into your interpretation? understanding of it at all that she's she's 22 he's 34 she's a regular person he is a uh, rich and famous rich and famous celebrity uh golden globe award winner uh last week does does that it, it's a little bit like the um to me even though they are they have no professional connection it is like the boss hitting on the secretary yeah i think that's fair i was actually talking about somebody um talking about that with someone this morning um there's definitely, it's not explicitly a workplace sexual assault or sexual harassment situation, but I can imagine had things gone well, had they made, you know, maintained a, a friendship that Ansari could have been super helpful in developing her career as a photographer. Absolutely. Um, and so there is that professional dynamic, but at the same time, like I, I feel for her because imagine being in that situation, imagine having, you know, a decade of an age difference, imagine having, you know, so much, so much of a difference in, in power and prestige. That's a huge issue. But there's also no way that I can think of other than having men in positions of power be far more cognizant of, of what they're doing. I don't know of a clear way to solve that. Those sort, sorts of situations will always exist. Um, and I think I, I do wonder, a lot of people have made the good point of had Grace spoken up and said no and been super assertive and super direct. You know, a lot of the times when women do that, men get really violent, men get aggressive, men beat them up and, and, you know, abuse them. Or sometimes men will rape them or kill them. Like you've seen fear mongering news reports of this, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a very fair point, but I do think in the Ansari situation, 
that's an unlikely outcome. I think she could have probably spoken up more. She could have said, no, you're scaring me. No, you're freaking me out. You understand this is completely inappropriate. You claim to be a feminist and you are acting in a way that is not feminist at all. It's terrifying. I think had she done that, there might have been a better outcome. And I'm sorry, could have backed off and she could have gotten away. Um, I, I, I sort of don't think that he is necessarily the type to, you know, kill her and stuff her in a closet. But then again, we also didn't think he was the type to be a huge asshole. So <laughs> yeah, and the you know, um, people knew that Harvey Weinstein was a powerful and aggressive man, but um, they didn't know that he was a serial rapist. And you know, agents sent young a- actresses into his hotel room, and um, and we know what happened after. Um, how does your how does your libertarianism um, shape how you view consent in in situations like this? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think libertarian gives me a greater libertarianism in general gives me this greater sense of personal agency and just like personal responsibility as being like a not necessarily the only answer but a helpful one. Um, and so I, I definitely consider myself a feminist, even if tons of leftist feminists will say I'm you know evil and a you know, member of the patriarchy society or whatever. Um, but I think it gives me the sense that the best way we can affect change is to speak up for ourselves, to be assertive, to create sort of the, um, the world we want to live in on an individual level. And so the way I do that in my own life is trying to make sure that I'm, you know, listening and giving a seat, uh, at the table to other like libertarian feminists and other like women who perhaps are having a hard time speaking up. Uh, the way I do that in my own life is just I'm I'm a woman in my early 20s. I try to be as assertive as possible. And, you know, I have been professionally penalized for that. Um, I've been called all sorts of names and had men in positions of power been really awful to me. But it's one of those things where, like, the only thing I can do is just keep being as assertive as, as possible. Um, and I'm just hopeful that more and more women sort of normalizing that will create a, a broader societal change. And people will get more comfortable seeing women being assertive. Um, and being in positions of power, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, before we turn to a, a related topic, is there anything else you want to say about the Ansari case? Um, mostly that I just hope it, it hasn't created a detrimental backlash in the Me Too movement. I think it's easy. The Caitlin Flanagan piece made me a little bit uncomfortable because I think it um, sort of was a little bit too dismissive, and I much preferred a... The, the Weiss New York Times piece, uh, because I think it sort of conveyed more of the complexity and nuance there. One thing that really bothers me is whenever I write for a more conservative website, I'm always greeted with a whole bunch of uh, pretty angry conservative men who basically just any any mention of the word feminism is so stressful and so upsetting for them. And I think there's really room for this middle ground where, you know, I'm not saying everybody has to have dyed hair like mine and we have to, you know, completely make sure men are eradicated within the next 10 years. That's not what I'm saying. But I think it's worth everybody considering, okay, how can I be more respectful of women being assertive in every area? Because that is ultimately how we'll clear up some of these gray areas. Yeah, I think there, there are people who want the Me Too movement to end and see and saw this as an opportunity to try to undermine it. And maybe it has undermined it slightly, but I think it's, it's complicated it, the storyline in interesting ways and is more, yeah, and more relatable, as the kids say. Um, well, because also, this kind of situation is much closer to the live reality of most people than the Harvey Weinstein, you know, sexual predator situation. Well, I also think there's this like sort of weird thing that I've been noticing for a while where a lot of people on the right are reacting very poorly to the muddling of terms. You know, we, we 
used to call rape, rape. And then we called rape and this whole, you know, vast array of sexual misconduct. We, we sort of put it under this broad term of sexual assault. And then now we're sort of seeing lots of sexual misconduct being swept into that broader umbrella. And I think people are beginning to be really freaked out. I think having that division in the past made it really clear which conversation we are having. Um, and so I think that's an area where the right is reacting very uh, negatively to the broader movement um, because they fear this blurring of boundaries and this difficulty. Because obviously, like, you know, sexual misconduct um, or sexual harassment or catcalling deserves a different punishment than, you know, forcible rape. Uh, and I think we've sort of lost that nuance and that way we talk about it. And I think a lot of people on the right are getting really pissed about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sort of in an opportune position to see what people on the left are saying about it and what people on the right are saying, because I hate everybody equally. And they hate <laughs> <you>. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good position to be in, I suppose. Um, let, let's talk about a related a topic, another topic related to me too, that bubbled up over the past uh, week or so, which is the case of Katie Royfe. Um, mm-hmm. Just to describe briefly for people who don't spend all their time on Twitter, um, it it leaked out um, a writer for the editor of N Plus One and then the writer Nicole Cliff um, found out that uh, Katie Royfe um, was writing a cover story for Harper's Magazine that would include naming the woman who created the shitty media men list, um, which most people have probably heard of, but was a... Um, Google Doc that was circulated among young women writers uh, shortly after the Weinstein story broke and cataloged anonymous accusations against uh, men in media um, with some, it was it was kind of the term whisper network, which I'd never heard before, um, made, which is women telling each other, you know, stay away from this guy, don't get drinks with him. Um, it, it it formalized it in a way that was that was not really intentional. And since it was entirely anonymous, the stuff could range from secondhand gossip to um, personal accusations. And there were people on there who I had, I saw a copy of the list. Um, There were people on there who I'd heard of who who were accused of rape. Um, So the, the, the list, leaked, you know, a sharing a Google Doc online, you can't uh, control it. Um, the the list leaked and it was deleted like 24 hours later. But uh, men who are on the list have since lost, have since been exposed and lost their positions. And some of them um, have gone underground since the list was published. So Royfi um, is writing an article on Me Too and said she was going to uh, name the person who created the list. And then that sparked a backlash. People were saying they're canceling their Harper subscription, although who really subscribes to Harper's to begin with? One must wonder. Um, I never read it. And they, they have a weird anti-online publishing strategy where they, do, they don't do a lot of stuff online, very old-fashioned. And then uh, Nicole Cliff was encouraging people who had articles uh, that they were going to publish at Harper's to uh, withdraw them in protest and... Uh, she was going to compensate them for uh, what they were going to uh, Harper's was going to pay them. And then uh, 24, 36 hours later, the woman who created the list um, added herself in an article for the cut at New York magazine and wrote a really interesting piece about why she created the list, how it changed and <laughs> it caught on much more than she ever thought it would. And, um, 
she was hailed as a hero. Katie Roy, Katie Royfe was um, admonished as a out of touch, uh, you know, second wave feminist villain. And the article is still apparently going to be published in Harper's in March. Did I did I get all that right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, one thing I just want to add from a libertarian perspective. The idea of somebody attempting to organize a protest and have people withdraw their articles and then pay them for it um, is brilliant. And I love it. It's such a good example of somebody sort of using private means and like social media and and, you know, the resources available to us to make sure that a queer market signal is sent to Harper's. Uh, so I thought that was pretty badass. Just so I'm like as a libertarian feminist side note. <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was an interesting I mean, it was an interesting protest for for that reason. It was. Uh, somewhat troubling to some people because they were pro- people were uh, protesting an article that hadn't been written yet, um, yeah. and there's there's some question around the facts about whether or not Royfi was actually going to name this woman, um, yeah. and she uh, to the to the New York Times she claimed that she was she didn't know who it was. I think that was dancing around the fact that maybe she was going to accuse someone without knowing for sure because the woman received a, um, a letter from a fact checker at Harper's oh, wow. uh, asking to confirm confirm this fact. Um, yeah, so what, what else can we say about this crazy situation? Well, I think it's, it's interesting that a lot of men had no idea like what a whisper network is um, because that's something I feel like since I've been like maybe 16 years old in any sort of professional context, women have been like, hey, be careful with that person or hey, like make sure you're, you're, you know, not having too many drinks with this person or whatever. And so it's really funny to me that this is such a foreign concept to men because this is something like since I was a teenager, I've been like, you know, actively involved in. It's just like such a part of being a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not really interesting. Um, and I, I think, I mean, that's yet another example of, you know, women using private means to try and keep each other safe. Um, but it is tough because this, so like half of me, like from a feminist perspective, I'm like, hell yeah, absolutely warn other women, try and keep each other safe, make sure that um, they're aware of, you know, something, somebody potentially being creepy to them. Like, that's really important. But then there's this other side. And it's like, I write about a lot of campus sexual assault and due process issues. Um, And from obviously, you know, when we're just talking amongst each other, due process isn't something that we must adhere to, right? But there's still this danger in throwing around accusations or throwing around gossip um, super lightly. And it's difficult to say, like, how lightly was somebody put it like, like, what was somebody's thought process when putting a man on the shitty media men list? I don't know, it might have been them stressing out about it for for weeks and really trying to discern, okay, is it worth potentially hurting this person's career? How severe was it? How can I accurately portray this? I mean, we're journalists, and we're editors. So we're really focused on facts and and, um, being fastidious with them. But I also do worry like, okay, if we just start circulating spreadsheets uh, that potentially say false things on them, like, is, is that a problem? I think so. But at the same time, like this is how whisper networks have sort of always gone. Um, it's really difficult to verify things like this because they happen in secret. Yeah, it's yeah. I, I'm I'm happy to learn of the existence of whisper networks because <laughs> yeah, I think this is something probably ninety percent of men had had no idea what was was happening. Um, uh, but I, sh- I you know I share some of your concerns. It's you know anyone can. Uh, make an accusation and we know that sometimes accusations of sexual assault are false. Um, it's relatively rare, but it, it, it does happen. Um, I mean, there's a movement among 
people on the right, uh, Andrew Sullivan wrote about this, saying that essentially this is like the new McCarthyism. Um, I wouldn't go that far. And as far as we know, no one has been, with the possible exception of Garrison Keillor, <laughs> no one has been taken down for something that they did not deserve to be taken down for. Would you, would you agree with that? To my knowledge, yes, there have been a few cases. I've like gone through different like lists and databases of these and like flagged a few that I'm just like somewhat curious or want more information about, but none are strikingly um, absurd with the exception of Garrison Keillor. Uh, I know it sounds so weird to be like, Garrison Keillor, he's the innocent one, because like who the hell cares about Garrison Keillor? But apparently I do. Apparently you do too. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to listen to Prairie Home Companion in the car when it was on. I, I'll, I'll admit it. It's occasionally funny, but yeah, his, his time has passed. Um, so so ha- losing his NPR sinecure of reading a poem every day, and I'm not, I'm not shedding too many tears. But at the same time, like, I, I very much believe in this principle. And I think a lot of people on the left can hopefully um, agree with it or empathize with it. I very much believe in this principle of, you know, innocent until proven guilty, at least in our legal system. And I think it's important that, I mean, we place a, a high premium on due process in the U.S., um, at least from the way that we approach these things judicially. And I hope we also internalize some of those concepts when we adjudicate things socially. Um because it, it really freaks me out, this idea of throwing around false accusations or potentially, um, like, it would be so easy to do. I think that's the part that really scares me. You know, it would be so easy for a young woman in media like myself to, you know, add a name to the list, and it wouldn't be necessarily verified or, or substantiated. But say the person is, like, a little bit on the creepy side, not on the lovable side, then other women could sort of begin to be like, oh, well, yeah, I've gotten weird vibes from them, too. And it would sort of grow, the, the hype around somebody potentially being a bad person, a, a really scum scummy, evil, awful person would, would grow and snowball. And I see that as, you know, a big issue. We have to use that power really wisely. I don't know if everybody does. I hope so. Yeah. I, yeah, there were, there were, when I saw there were about 75 names on that list. Um, and yeah, and as it's been reported, they ranged in, they ranged from accusations of rape, which were printed in red, which meant in the, on the list, there were um, at least two people who made that accusation to, creepy as fuck in the dms which is like not <laughs> which something creepy, right <laughs> which which happens um but is not you know maybe shouldn't get you your name put on the list at the same time no one really wants a creepy man in their dms so you know to cut it out <laughs> guys cut it out um it's also tough because like when we're and I, i'm not i'm not a men's rights activist i swear to god despite the fact that i'm a libertarian um but I do also wonder, like, to what degree are we not giving people the benefit of the doubt just as humans? Like, there are lots of journalist dudes or, or editor dudes who I find a little weirdly forward or a little weirdly creepy. And sometimes I have to think, okay, is this because they've literally been sitting in, like, the equivalent of a basement fallout shelter for the past, like, 10 years just, like, researching something or crafting a database? Like, is it because of lack of social skills or because, you know, of actual malicious intent? So I try to take somebody's intent into consideration. Um, and you know, I think there's also, that's easier to do when you're behind the shelter and the privacy of a screen. Uh, and so you're not directly faced with a threat. And so somebody being creepy online is a little different than somebody being really inappropriate in person or creepy in person. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, I mean, do you think, what did you think of the essay that was, that the woman, oh, was first name I think is Moira, Moira, am I remembering that correctly? Um, we'll, we'll find the link to that included below. Um, what did you, did you read that? And what, if so, what did you think of it? 
No, I didn't read it. Um, I have been, I've read some stuff by Katie Royfe, uh, and I was really interested in reading that Harper's article. Um, but yeah, I mean, what were sort of the main takeaways from it, from your perspective? Um, so her name is Moira Donegan. Um, her articles, I started the media, the shitty media men list. I mean, yeah, she wrote about how she was inspired to do this because of her own, um, experiences with, uh, you know, sexual mis- misconduct for men in media. She had no idea it was going to going to blow up and go viral. Um, it really was an attempt to make the whisper network, um, more explicit for young women who weren't, um, you know, weren't, weren't immediately a part of it. So, and the fact that she, you know, came out, um, out of anonymity to do this was brave. I thought, you know, I'm sure she's going to face some harassment from the kind of, you know, the, whatever the equivalent of the Gamergate people are in the, in the media world. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Roy, I think Royfi comes off pretty poorly in this, um, uh, equivocating to the New York times about whether or not she was going to expose this person and, you know, delegating to the fact checker to, to reach out instead of doing it, uh, doing it herself. So yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, I, you know, agreeing with the kind of Twitter consensus that uh, she did something, you know, kind of heroic, and Royfi is the more villainous character in this little, you know, moral drama that <laughs> that played out. Yeah, but it's also one of those things. Like, to what degree is that because of this specific situation, or because Twitter, especially leftist Twitter, had already decided that Royfi was the villain, right? Like, that's something I always try to consider. Um, I don't pr- have a particularly strong opinion there. I'm actually reading this article now. It's it's quite good. Um, the, the Moira Donegan one. Um, but sometimes I do wonder the Twitter mob gets so intense and to what degree, um, is it just sort of predicated on whether or not they like somebody or they like the publication they're associated with versus, you know, they hate them. Like Katie Royfi is sort of an easy person to villainize, right? Yeah. At least, you know, from a Twitter mindset. Yeah. And yeah, it's the way a lot of women I follow on Twitter were talking about this was like Royfi represented the past, and this era when it was, you know, you could make a living by becoming like a, um, calling yourself a feminist, but uh, critiquing feminism, uh, which I, I, I was only aware of Roy Fee through like occasional essays she would write, but apparently her first book was like a skeptical take on uh, date rape on campus. Yeah. And that's an issue that has been, you know, relitigated in, re- in recent years. So yeah, people were ready to hate Katie Roy Fee <laughs> and were thinking like, oh God, you know, what, what bad take is, is she going to spit out? And then the fact that she was, uh, going to out, um, this, this woman who did something, uh, mostly, (laughs) mostly positive, what, yeah, just got the Twitter mob ready to go after her. Yeah. I mean, part of my thought with, um, Royfi is that she's sort of seen, I don't, I don't know if this is fully accurate, but you know, like Laura Kipnis and Christina Hoff Sommers and Mm -hmm. Emily, those people who are sort of like, skeptics of the the title nine campus rape sort of situation that we're currently in it's so easy for twitter to unleash all their hatred on them and and to read them really uncharitably and some for example like emily offie i feel like are really even-handed with their approach to this and they're actually contributing a lot to our overall dialogue around title nine um but you know the classic twitter mob is so predisposed to to absolutely hate them and to tear them apart and i think that really like snowballs and and builds the, the Twitter mob is, is unforgiving and unmerciful, and, and that's a huge problem in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely, 
it's absurd to me that the shitty media men list has been such a newsworthy item. Um, I sort of just see it as something that's pretty darn good and something that has existed for a long time um, in terms of a whisper network just hasn't been formalized in Google doc format, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I sort of don't see why it has been such a newsworthy item. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's about, it's media looking at itself, which a lot of people in the media like to navel gaze. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, gossip. Everyone loves, loves to gossip, whether they admit it or not. And a lot of it was people who, um, you know, there were people who work at Vice. There were people who work at BuzzFeed. So uh, there were people who work at uh, more intellectual magazines like uh, Mother Jones and The New Republic. I mean, uh, Weasel Tears' name was on there, and he was one of the first dominoes to fall. So, but um, the way I, I sort of feel about it is, it's like people, especially on the left, the media left, realizing that other members of the media left are shitty. Uh, and to me, a libertarian who sort of receives the the hate from both the right and the left, I'm not surprised at all. It's like, wow, really, male feminist writer at Mother Jones is creepily sexist? Wow, color me surprised. Whereas I think to a lot of people, that's a more surprising sort of revelation. Um, it's easier for me to sort of see some of like the elitism and some of the creepy comments and some of the, like a, a lot of men sort of, to use their own word, mansplain at me, but they're on the left. And so they're, they're it's acceptable. It's good. But I sort of see it and feel belittled as a result of it and so it's it, i don't think it's nearly as surprising to those of us sort of in the middle or who are a little bit far, further removed from the media left mm -hmm. yeah and what's something that i i where i put myself on the ideological spectrum is somewhere between liberal and left but i, I follow a lot of left people on twitter because they're often uh funnier than the people who are not part of left twitter why is that? I don't know. There's just, yeah, a lot of weird, there's a massive over, overlap between weird Twitter humor, which I really like, and, um, you know, the social democratic uh, left that I don't entirely understand. But uh, where is that going with this? Oh, yeah. So there's something like, there's this idea on the left that, like, you, to be a good person, you have to have good politics. And then the reverse of that is, if you have good politics, well, of course you're a good person. And yeah. that, that's been exploded by this. Um, uh, there, like I said, there was a well-known leftist writer who was accused of rape in red on the spreadsheet and he delivered, deleted his Twitter account and has not been heard of since. Um, so yeah, you know, just, just because you, <laughs> I, I don't know if there is such a thing as good politics, but, uh, <laughs> just because you claim to have it does not actually make you good and you can be good with, with bad politics, I think, which I think, which is, would be a controversial opinion in yeah. some parts of the left. <laughs> yeah. So I'm of the opinion that any politics is bad politics. And so there's no such <laughs> thing as good politics. <laughs> we can delude ourselves into thinking that those things somehow correlate, but at the end of the day, I just really don't think they do. <laughs> um, that might be a good place to end it. Do you have anything else you'd want to say about the Roy Fee shooting media men list? Um, just that I hope, well, number one, I hope the media stops navel-gazing. We're so obsessed with ourselves that it's completely obnoxious to be a part of. Uh, but also, I, I hope this just has instigated some sort of self-reflection, especially for, for men in media, um, just about reflecting, like, how can they be ever so slightly more um, welcoming, more inclusive? And I hope women also sort of take away from this, how can I be slightly more assertive? Um, and, and how do I, like, you know, socialize my children to accept women being assertive and to not call that bitchy or bossy, but rather to call that just, you know, a woman speaking up for what she needs. Mm -hmm. 
that's sort of my hope. Uh, you know, I want everything to be solved through private and voluntary uh, individualistic means, as usual. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing that's interesting about this moment is, um, there, as far as I know, there haven't been a lot of new laws proposed. It's yeah. it's really been uh, a, a, a non you know a private sector thing that's that's happening. And well, why well, do you think that is? It's because politicians do gross, creepy shit. Yeah, it's because well, part of it is probably the politi- the um, scumbag male politicians who don't want to legislate against their own bad behavior, and the other part is that it, it's hard for the state to reach into this uh, very personal realm of interactions between men and women. Um, we'll probably we're probably going to see a- more lawsuits. No, I mean Harvey Weinstein. For if the allegations are true, Harvey Weinstein is a criminal and deserves to be. Uh, locked up for the rest of his life. So, no, so there hasn't been like big prosecutions yet, but maybe that's going to start coming. Even though I'm horrifically soft on criminal justice, I think I mostly agree with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the concept of locking anyone in a metal cage for life, like gives me like the chills in like a really bad way. But yeah, I think it is interesting sort of seeing how that will play out in the court system. Um, so thanks so much, Liz, for coming on. Where can people find your work if they're interested in learning more about what you do? Um, they can find me on Twitter, uh, at sign L I Z Z Y W O L. Uh, I post pretty much all of my articles there. Um, and yeah, that's about it. Hopefully they won't get sick of libertarian rants and blue hair in general. (laughs) Um, cool. Thanks to all of our viewers and listeners out there. Uh, Uh, Thanks so much, Liz, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, Or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.